You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Today's cool fact of the day is that rowers are rated to be the most physically fit athletes in the world, apparently ahead even of of CrossFitters, although I kind of wonder about that. Uh, Physiologists say that rowing a 2,000 meter race or one and a quarter miles is equal to playing a bunch of back-to-back basketball games and There's a unique cardio stress that's put on your heart during rowing, which means that rowers have the biggest hearts of any athlete. And that's actually why the National Space Biomedical Research Institute trains their astronauts on elite rowing machines before they launch them into space, which is kind of cool and maybe a reason I should start rowing, although actually I don't really row even though I live near the water. It'd be kind of cool, but who knows, I might get wet. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. If I didn't foreshadow that today's show was going to be about rowing, well, I think then you need to listen again. Because today's guest is Hans Struzina from Kirkland, Washington. And he now lives in the Bay Area. Hans is a member of the elite USA men's eight rowing team. 
He's won or placed at the World Rowing Cup, Senior World Championship Trials, National Selection Regatta, and many more. Uh, he's been basically doing all kinds of crazy high-performance athletic rowing things that uh, uh, put me to shame for any of my biohacking. And not only is he going to tell us what he does to be really high-performing like this, but he's going to ask me a few questions as well. Definitely uh, of the biohacker mindset, Hans, welcome to the show. Dave, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure and honor. I've been a fan of the show for some time, so it's kind of surreal to actually be on it this time. Oh, well, it's, it's my pleasure to have you on. I, I love to mix it up and get a picture of, of people who are putting principles to work at elite levels, which you're totally doing, uh, and then other people who are doing elite level research. So we sort of hear mm -hmm. it from both sides because we're all our own guinea pigs, but you're maybe more of a guinea pig than normal because, I mean, you're you're doing a very quantitative amount of work. Like either either you moved faster or you didn't. Either you pulled harder mm -hmm. or you didn't. There's no wiggle room. There's no self-deception there, which makes it like a very pure form of, of guinea pigmanship, if there was yeah. such a word. Sure. Absolutely. So let's talk about how you got into rowing because it's it's – Frankly, it's an odd sport. It's inconvenient to find water, for one thing. But yeah. like, why rowing, of all the things you could have done? Well, I was, a, I was an athlete in other sports growing up, so I tried football, basketball, uh, wrestled a little bit, track and field, all the, all the traditional stuff. And it wasn't until, I believe, my, the, the summer between my sophomore and my freshman year of high school that my parents thought we should get out of the house and do a family activity together. And so we decided rowing, what the heck? We lived near Lake Sammamish at the time and we signed up for a class and we got in these big fat singles that were supposedly unflippable, but we proved <laughs> that wrong very quickly, the four of us. And, uh, and anyways, then it just kind of evolved. I joined the rec program for the summer and then I, didn't want to go back to track or football or basketball or anything like that. So I was like, what the heck, I'll give it a try and just kept going. Found I had a knack for it and, you know, got the bug, so to speak. So you found something you love and just pursued it until the, the very highest elite levels. Yeah. And it, and it just was always about kind of figuring out what the next level is. Can I get, you know, what's the best I can be and can I maximize this level? And then I found out like, I could go to the next one, and then I could go to the next one, and here I am. <laughs> so, what's what level is next for you then? Like, like what what's past all of this? Because there's always levels, but yeah. <laughs> what do you do at the so, top? So, athletically, I mean, you know, you make it to the Olympics in a in a in a non professional sport, so to speak, an amateur sport, right? And you know, that's kind of the pinnacle. So, so then it would be, I guess, going back for trying for a medal or trying you know, to be a multi-time medalist or something like that. But that's, that's really kind of for each person to decide if that's, if that's the way they want to go. But what about you? What, what's, what are you going to do next? Like when you reach the pinnacle? Yeah. So phenomenal question. I don't really know what my, what my plan is as far as athletically continuing because I've, I've been to the Olympics already. Um, so to go back is, a lot of work, first of all. And then, then, of course, there's no guarantee. You know, you're only as good as your last performance. So um, I don't know if it's if it's what I want to do next or if I want to retire and try something else. Uh, when my mom was a, a teenager, she was invited to try out for the Olympics for swimming. Mm -hmm. And she looked at that and said, seems like a lot of work. <laughs> she decided not to. 
And her her unfair advantage was that she has abnormally large feet, so it's like built-in uh-huh. flippers. And, right. and she passed them down to me, which has been a curse uh-huh. ever since. Because I got size 16 feet, I can't I can't buy shoes. It's terrible. Oh my gosh! But, but I yeah. guess I'm a good swimmer as a result. Yeah. So, given that I'm unlikely to ever be in the Olympics, uh, one of the things that I know that the Olympic nutritionists do is they pre-screen the crap out of you, like they do urinalysis, skin fold tests, resting metabolic rate, and a bunch of blood work mm-hmm. to see what's going on. When they did that for you, did you learn anything useful? Like, was it helpful or were you already too dialed in so it didn't matter? Um, so we worked with a nutritionist. Her name was Liz, and she's a member of the USOC staff, phenomenal uh, nutritionist. And she did an analysis of every athlete, diet, how much you're sleeping, how often you're eating, what kind of stuff you're eating. And and I had spent a fair amount of time kind of dialing in my my regimen, so to speak, and she kind of liked what I was doing, and we just kind of added a few things here and there. Um, so it was more like implementing some supplements and then trying to uh, figure out how to maybe get a few extra calories in every so often and and try and gain some weight. But the biggest thing that some of that information provided was that a lot of us on the team were actually low in vitamin D. And, you know, there's some varying opinions on vitamin D versus uh, versus performance, but you know, don't leave any stone unturned. So we tried, I got on a vitamin D supplement and, uh, that was kind of the biggest thing that came out of that. And it, I mean, I was trying a lot of things. I can't say that that was the one thing that made the difference for me, but it was certainly, I'm I'm sure it didn't help. It didn't hurt. It's kind of scary because vitamin D comes from sunlight exposure. You got to get sun in your eyes and on your skin to make vitamin D. And you typically see the sun more as an Olympic rower than almost anyone else, but you're right. still deficient. So you went on a supplement, but what did? What about just like rowing with your shirt off? Like when, I, <laughs> when I go kayaking, I wear a life vest, but no shirt for right. that exact reason. Um, yeah. Did you do that? So part of the thing is, so we train, the national team's based in Princeton, New Jersey. And we were, at the time we got tested, we were coming out of basically winter on the East oh. Coast. So it's, you know, 40 degrees on the water. You're not going to go shirtless on a day like that. It's called, you know, hypothermic training. (laughs) Yeah. um, That's, it's, I don't know if you've ever had to be on the water when it's that cold, but it is not very fun. Brutal. Absolutely brutal. (laughs) Yeah. So, so we wear tights, we wear hats, we wear vests, you know, so you were covered. It's because you were in the middle of winter in New Jersey, which is very high uh, up towards the North Pole. So, of mm-hmm. course, you just didn't have yeah. any. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then during the summer, I'm guessing your levels would go up. And I, Yeah. I, I live that far north. I'm in Victoria, British Columbia. Right. So uh, it's crappy right now. In fact, I'm going to go spend a week on an island with sunshine pretty soon here because you, you need to get that vitamin D up mm-hmm. some way. And, and uh, I use a suntanning lamp when I'm here, too, to activate the, the, the stuff. That's, that's great. What uh, what did you eat when you were training? Like, walk me through a typical day. So I would start every day with some bulletproof coffee, and I know you were t- talking about the Instant Mix. I actually had a bunch of that in Rio with me, oh, and that cool. made we didn't have refrigerators in our units, so we, you know, that kind of was out. So it was really great that I had the Instant Mix. <laughs> wow, with me that, I, that would suck to try and control your nutrition <laughs> for this huge important event without a refrigerator. Like that's just yeah. primitive. <laughs> Yeah, and luckily the dining hall was always open, and okay. they had a huge amount of food there, so you could really get anything you wanted. Oh, that's good. Cool. Um, 
but typically it's, you know, it would be the bulletproof coffee before training or on my way to training, maybe throw a banana. And then I do something like a goo while I was training, depending on the type of workout we were doing, um, for like an AT or high intensity work, then we would, you would do the goo, you need the carbs. Um, but for a steady state, probably not. And then go your looks like I, I, I was going to say, do do any of your rowing friends on, on your team or, or your crew, any of the other ones, you know, do any of them row with you know zero carb kind of keto adapted rowing? I I haven't heard of that, but um, no, not that I'm aware of. I there's some interesting camps out there. Where some people are saying you, know, you can do a, the keto adapted Ironman and all. I, I think it seems biologically complex and unnecessary. And, yeah. and it, it's nice to be able to burn two kinds of fuel even yep. at the same time, which isn't normally possible. But mm-hmm. that's what you were doing because you still have ketones left from the brain octane and the Instamix. So you're, you're able to burn some of those and get some of the carbs from the goo. Right. And, and could you feel a difference when you did it that way versus like just say a carby kind of breakfast or scrambled eggs or something? Um, it's okay to say no. Like yeah. I'm not looking for a plug. I'm I mean, just, I'm wondering. Yeah, like, no. I Because I before I found Bulletproof Coffee, I was doing a... Uh, a, a pretty healthy or pretty big hefty shake that had like okay. peanut butter, oatmeal, bananas. I think I was doing coconut fat in there okay. um, and some berries, you know, frozen fruit basically. Mm-hmm. And then I found the Bulletproof Coffee and liked that way better. Got uh, it. And just, I mean, flavor and taste, but it also the way it made me feel. Um, I can't say that I had a you know, a huge profound performance impact, but I think sure. that over time, um, my body responded better to the doing the bulletproof coffee for sure. Now, what about protein? I mean, you are one of those people who works out enough that you're going to need more protein than I do. I don't work out nearly as much as you do. Mm-hmm. So what do you do to get your protein in? Like your breakfast is bulletproof coffee, but like, yeah, what else? So I would actually, I actually started playing around with putting like collagen protein okay. in, the bulletproof coffee and that was that was a good start but our nutritionist was asking us to do 25 grams of protein per meal five times a day it's a lot and, of protein yeah and so because of the amount basically the amount her thinking was the amount of uh cardio we're doing she doesn't want us to trim down she wants to keep the weight mm-hmm. on and actually gain some weight in a lot of cases uh and you know you don't want to emaciate yourself basically down to, you know, lose all this powerful muscle that you're trying to build in the weight room and that sort of thing. Cool. So what kind of protein do you normally use then as, as a rower? Uh, you said collagen for sure. I, right. but that's not gonna, it's not a complete protein. It's the least inflammatory protein. I like to, I like right. to bulk up my protein with that because you get extra protein without excessive aminos that are inflammatory, but mm-hmm. w- I mean, that can't be all you use. Like what no, other powder I mean, kind of things, like what forms were good? That was really the only, uh, supplement Okay. And I was doing the whey protein that you you have as well. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of playing around with different mixtures and combinations and just seeing what what was good. And um, then it was, you know, traditional stuff like eating eggs and beans and cool. meats and, you know, whatever was available. Got it. And cost so just, effective as well. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. It gets expensive if you're only going to eat collagen protein. Yeah. <laughs> or any definitely. other kind of high-end supplement, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, now, are U.S. Olympic dietitians pretty cutting edge, or are they you know, like or Whole Foods? Everyone should eat more whole grains and, and a balanced, healthy meal, and like a bunch of platitudes. Like, how how progressive did you find the advice you got? Uh, 
that's a that's a really interesting question because it it definitely was kind of like be whole you know all around kind of eat your whole grains eat your vegetables eat your fruits as well um but it was for me i I felt like because i listened to your podcast and had done some other kind of research i had a little bit better of a base to start from and and my mom actually was really into nutrition for about five or ten years for herself for fitness and so i kind of rode her coattails in that so i had a little bit of a base to start from Uh, so we were able to have a little bit of a maybe more advanced conversation but Mm -hmm. she also had to work with multiple teams and every every sport has an interesting starting place and has these kind of um opinions on you know (laughs) the type of supplement you should use so she was with some athletes she was saying if it has the word jacked in the title you can't use it you know so that that was kind of that's also where she's coming from on some of that stuff it it's really frustrating i've spoken with a few nutritionists like that where they actually want to take the time to dial in and have like highly compliant athletes like like you would have been you know where where they can talk about it but like you said at some point they're like okay if you're gonna eat m&ms could they at least be the peanut ones because they're better than the regular (laughs) ones even though neither of them should be on your diet and right so uh, there's a lot of frustration that happens there uh so you got some good advice there yeah sounds like and it and she kind of liked more or less everything that i was doing and she had some few tweaks which definitely you know we tracked over time definitely made some made some good improvements um, but I wasn't, I didn't have to do like a wholesale change. Like, cool. you know, I wasn't doing McDonald's every day and, you know, not eating some meals and, you know, she's trying to get people to like eat regularly. That would be a big <laughs> step for some people. You okay. Know? I hear you. Uh, what about race day? I mean, mm-hmm. you said, you talk about the supplements that say jacked on them. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess I'm going to have to cancel my upgraded jacked formula. But what, what do you do on the race day? Ergogenic aids, caffeine, uh, mm-hmm. beta alanine. Uh, like, there's all kinds of people. L-glutamine, mm-hmm. uh, acetyl carnitine. I, I don't know. What, what what do you do if anything? Yeah. So we, as a team, kind of were trying the three basic uh, supplements. So everyone has their form of caffeine. Some guys are popping caffeine pills. Some people are up for two hours grinding espresso shots and like you know just putting back eight shots of espresso. Um, I was more of a just do my bulletproof coffee, try and keep my routine as consistent as possible. But I would add in, I would do a, a, a nitrate shot okay. about two hours or so before the competition. This is an oral shot just for people listening, not an injection. Right. Okay. Yeah. Beet, beet juice kind of thing? It was Yeah, it was concentrated beet juice. So it had like okay. 400 milligrams of nitrates in it or something like that. I can't remember the specifics of it. Okay. Um, so we did that and then we were also on a beta alanine load and then maintenance phase through for about four or five months, uh, for our various training cycles leading up to the Olympics. So we were just constantly dosing every day, you know, two, two beta alanine pills. Okay. That helps your mitochondrial function. So you're basically Mm -hmm. making it so your, your muscles can make more energy, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, and then that, those two were the big kind of supplements that the team was doing. And then everyone kind of had their little things that they would do, whether it would be, you know, I don't know, as simple as just a goo or something like that right before you were launching, or it could have been, you know, I didn't, I didn't kind of go question everybody's specific details, but for me, it was those two things. And then just make sure that I'm like well hydrated 
and feeling not full, but also not hungry, which is kind of an interesting place to try and put yourself. Right. Right. So it's, you don't want to be so full that you're vomiting after the end. Cause you're carrying around you, all this blood's going there and then you're trying to pull it out of the stomach and push it into your muscle, you know? So, but you also don't want to be that hungry cause then that's distracting as well. So everyone's kind of got their different way of doing it. Okay. I hear what you're saying there. Cause yeah, you, you really don't want to be like completely jacked up. Like it, mm-hmm. it doesn't, it doesn't feel good when you're, when you're too full and you're trying to exercise or you have to yeah. eat another meal. Um, mm-hmm. I, I totally get that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as far as rowing is concerned, um, those were kind of the main things that we did. You know, I've heard people doing other, uh, having other things or trying, you know, altitude and like trying to include that kind of stuff in, which is kind of cool. Um, but not something that we did, but though that's really what we focused on, uh, primarily as far as supplements and aids, if you will. How about like avoiding gluten, dairy, soy? Like, did, did you cut some categories of things out for higher performance or are you like, you exercise so much, you're like a human garbage disposal. <laughs> I, I, by the way, I've always wanted to be one of those yeah. where you're like, I eat anything and I feel great. Yeah. Uh, so I tried, there was a time when I tried to go gluten free, but I found it was like really, really hard to get the amount of calories. And I think I lost like 10 pounds when I went gluten free, when I was really trying And it was just very, very difficult for me to keep weight on. And so I decided I had to kind of introduce it back in uh, just to keep my weight up so I could be competitive. And I've now gotten to the point where I can be fairly, I'm not, I don't call myself gluten-free by any stretch of the imagination because I'm not, but I definitely choose things other than like bread and wheat when it comes to like getting my calories in. Like I like rice, for example. Um, I go, I do a lot of rice. Um, as far as soy goes, I've never been much of a soy fan. It just, the whole thing. It's just not right. Yeah. There's, (laughs) I just, I, I just don't get it, I guess. And maybe someone can explain this to me that makes sense finally, but then you've got all the, you know, there's the whole ethical thing with Monsanto and then there's like the whole, is it even good for you in the, I don't know. So I just kind of don't go there. Uh, I hear you. Uh, There's plenty of reasons not to do that as far as I can tell. Yeah, it's it's kind of like Brussels sprouts. There, I don't like Brussels sprouts, and there's so many other vegetables. If if I want to eat green vegetables that I can do that I like more, so you know why go there? All right, I, I hear you there. What about uh, on the the physical training frequency? Like to perform at an Olympic level, how many days a week? How how long each each day? Like like how much time goes into being an Olympic rower? Yeah, so it's. It's definitely a day-to-day thing. So it's roughly speaking three to four hours a day, your heart rate's elevated. And uh, ideally you're in a zone for that many hours a day, but that's some, you know, you got to kind of ramp up through the workout sometimes, especially if you get in good shape and then you got to push harder to get your heart Mm -hmm. rate up. Um, But then it's also a real, it's an endurance sport. So the longer you stay in it, the better you can get and really what happens in, in, with rowers is that you become better as you get a little older. So they say somewhere between 27 and 30 is typically a peak where you're going to kind of hit and then you can sort of maintain that for a couple more years if you want. Um, and then you got to kind of adjust once you get into your early 30s, adjust your training so that your body is responding and you're not killing yourself basically. But it's so it's 
at, at the at the level we were at, it's like four hours a day split over two practices. Um, we would do like one 24-hour period off every week, which would be a Saturday afternoon to like a Sunday afternoon. So we wouldn't actually have a full day, but it would be, you know, 24 hours. Um, and then you just kind of rinse and repeat and then go from, you know, go from there. And then, you know, once you start to taper, uh, you bring the, the the volume down, but the intensity might go up. So instead of doing those four hours, you might only be doing two hours, but you're doing race rehearsals and warm-ups and stuff like that. What about the cognitive side of it? So, mm-hmm. so you've got your mental training down like that, but the U.S. rowing team has more medals than any other country in the world. So mm-hmm. there's like no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you how do you deal with the pressure of, of something like that? That's a that's a really good question. So rowing is is as you can imagine very repetitive, right? So it's you're just you're you're in a boat, you're moving back and forth. Blade goes in the water, blade goes out of the water, repeat. It's pretty, there's no trick plays and stuff. So it's all about focusing on these like minute tenths and hundreds of seconds as far as your timing with everyone else in the boat, as well as being able to get all of your training, uh, all the miles and all the hours you did of training into this roughly five and a half to six minute race and having the best strokes come out in that point. Um, And that's, part of why we train so many hours is because you need to get those repetitions in so that when the pressure comes on, autopilot will hopefully take over and you can just repeat what you've always done. Okay. So you sort of cut the the thinking out of it because mm-hmm. you don't need to think because it's just built in your nervous system. Right. And so one thing we're really big on in the sport is creating a plan and having a plan before you go and sit on the erg for an erg test or go to the line for a race And the reason for that is because at some point you're going to get in there and you're going to switch out of that aerobic into that anaerobic or vice versa, wherever you're at, and it's going to hurt and you're going to want to stop and you got to have this plan, right? So if you don't have that, the pain is just going to take over and you're going to stop or you're going to let up or something. And if you have this plan, you're like, no, no, I know it's, this is coming. I expected it. It's like 90, we're 80 seconds into the race. I'm switching over into this aerobic and all of a sudden like, okay, this should feel this way. Three big deep breaths. And now we're, now we're back into it. What about, what about uh, like trust and flow states? Like it's one thing to be in a flow state when you're an extreme skier, but you're like connected to a group of other people. So how did, how do you get into flow and how do you do it with your team at the same time? So I think that is actually one of the biggest areas of improvement for, for rowers in general is recognizing that whole concept of flow. Uh, everyone can say a time that they've been in it. No one, not no one, very few people know what it, that it's even potentially called flow. And then even fewer know how to like try and repeat that uh, for themselves or for a team. And that... I would have to say again is just where the, like you said, the trust, that's huge, but also the repetitions come in uh, on the water where it's just like we, we've done this before, we know what to do, like let it take over and, and just kind of relax and breathe and, you know, the, and not, not worrying about the result as much as, you know, worrying about taking the strokes. And that's usually when, when a crew really dials in on that concept, that's when the best strokes happen. 
Do you guys do any sort of like hippie stuff? Do you all like sit in a room and meditate together so you can get in the, the same the same state at the same time? Yeah. Do, do you like sing Kumbaya together? Uh, <laughs> naked showers. I'm kidding. But like, I have no yeah, idea. Like, like, what do you do when you're not rowing to build uh, like like at brotherhood? At like, I don't know the right yeah. word for it, but there's, there's something that you do when you're really connected with a group of, mm-hmm. of a group of guys where like, you just know each other really, really well. How do you foster that outside of of the of the what do you call it the the whole? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a great question. That's that's a challenge, of course, because everyone, especially at this level, we're all kind of adults and we have lives. Yeah. We're not we're not in college any longer. We're in college. It's easy. You know, you you go to the dining hall. You, yeah, you get drunk to together. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Whatever it is, you know, NCAA doesn't need to know what we did or didn't do. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Um, right. Um, any, you know. Anyways, the uh, so what we did is we came up with like a, f- a forced fun activity where we would go uh, actually do like mini golf or bowling together as a team. Cool. And and those were pretty fun because it was like okay, everyone has to be here, but we're gonna f- have fun with each other anyways. And that those were actually um, I think super valuable in the long run. Uh, it just, you know, you get out of the rowing boat, you get out of practice, you see people in their normal clothes. It's just, you know, there's yeah. something about that. There's a lot of research in, in building teams for business that's similar. Like mm-hmm. the, there's a social aspect. No one can really tell you why, but I, I can see how that would apply here as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking that there's got to be some hacks. Maybe there's some Olympic or even pro trainers doing this. But if everyone does heart rate variability training at the same time, interesting stuff happens like i've done that with my executive team before meetings uh sometimes we'll all do like five minutes of uh of heart rate variability training all at the same time mm-hmm. and so we're all kind of in the same zone the same period and there's mm-hmm. some advanced stuff that i and i'm not, I'm, I'm like my little wheels are turning with the 40 years of zen neurofeedback facility uh-huh. outside seattle uh, i'm it'd be interesting to get like a team of four people through there and then do everyone's training at the same time and then there's things we can do to actually like train you to be in sync with someone else at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a pretty powerful thing where you actually you get a signal when your brain is in the same state as someone else's. I, I imagine that would affect rowing, but there's no yeah. data about that. It just seems cool. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the challenges, of course, with rowing is is it's not basketball or football. The money's, you know, the money's not there for, for all these kinds of things. You know, you're if you're your team has like a $3 million budget every year. That's huge in the sport. And uh, so you just got to decide where the money's going. Like, are you going to just, so you, are you just going to have like a very small group and start, you yeah. know, have four or five, six guys, whatever, and spend a lot of money per head? Or are you going to sp- bring a 30 person group together and yeah. just let the cream rise to the top in that sense? I kind of like the $99 sensor heart rate variability version of that because that's within the budget for everyone. You sure. just got to get over the, like the dorky feeling. You're like, okay, we're all going to sit here and we're going to put these little clips on our ears. We're all going to like look at our phones and make them make bonging sounds together. But that's, I mean, we do that at Bulletproof and it, and it works. Wow. But it's, I'd love uh, to try that. But it's, yeah, there's, there's definitely like a, a type A macho whatever kind of yeah. thing you got to overcome first in the rowing, definitely in the <laughs> rowing world, but I'm sure everywhere too. That's why I kind of call the hippie BS. And like, I, I see that too. When someone joins the company for the first time, they're like, 
you want me to do what? It's like, well, look, just try it. Like, and, and same thing with hedge fund managers. I, I've had an opportunity to talk to a bunch of like high-end money people mm-hmm. uh, about Bulletproof because they're all interested in this stuff. And yep. I, I, this one guy, you know, he calls me after like international flights. Like, I finally did it because like yeah. it, it's the opposite of like, yeah, I control a billion dollars. And yeah. it's like, yeah, now you got to like, you know, take a deep breath and, you know, focus yeah. on your heart. So I, yeah, I could yeah. see that being a really big thing um, just from the, the people I knew who, who were in, on crew at UC Santa Barbara. The, like, I, they, they probably weren't the meditating types. Then again, that was 20 years ago. It might have changed. Sure. What about mentorship? Did you have mentors who helped you? Or like, what, what's your take on that as, as becoming like a world-class athlete? It seems like learning from someone who's done it before right. would be the easiest way. Yeah, it's, um, I, I can't remember who said this quote, but it's, it's the essence of it was, you know, if someone's been there, it's, it can be repeated and done again. And I think that that's a huge part of mentorship uh, or just of being better at something. So you've obviously done a really great job being a biohacker and putting forth all of this information and these products and your results kind of show that someone else could pursue, you know, follow your plan or follow some version of it and get a similar or hopefully the same result. Now that's, you know, biologically we can, have a different conversation. Everyone's a little different and that sort of thing. Yeah. Sure. Uh, but nonetheless, I think it kind of applies. So with rowing, it's like really simple. Like if you have these numbers as far as power and strength and endurance and stuff, you can expect this result. And we have years and years and years of data to prove like if your boat average is on the erg, you know, whatever it is, five fifty or better, you have a really, really good shot of making, getting a medal. You know, it's like ridiculous how high it is. Or like if you go for a second Olympics, uh, your shot of winning a medal is like twofold higher or something like that. You know, there's just all this information. But then to get to those places, you think, okay, I'm like this high school kid, for example. I have no clue how I could even get in the ballpark. And I think that's kind of where the mentorship part of it comes in. That makes a lot of sense. What are you doing for to be a mentor now that you're an Olympian? What yeah. are you doing to help other people? So my, I won't even call it a side project. One of, one of the things I've, I never had was I never had someone really sit me down and say, this is what you need to do and this mm-hmm. is how we can do it. Let's make a plan. I had coaches who had various inputs into that, but it wasn't any like one consistent person. And so I thought, you know, I've been through the ringer. I've been 12 years in the sport. I've kind of seen every part of it. Um, why don't I try and be that person for somebody? And so I've, I've started this website called coachhans.com. It's kind of my personal website where people can go on there, reach out to me if they have, you know, questions, concerns, comments, whatever about the sport of rowing. And I can give them my two cents on how to improve and we can you know, work together for an extended period. Uh, I usually do try and do like three months at a time and uh, basically make a plan, have weekly check-ins, have someone who's accountable, but also a little more knowledgeable than them. And and that's kind of what I'm, one of the things I'm doing right now as far as kind of giving back and mentoring. Uh, Thanks for doing that, by the way. Uh, um, When I was a teenager, I I didn't realize that, that people actually wanted to help. Mm-hmm. I was sort yeah. of like, if you want something, you have to go out and take it, yep. uh, which isn't how the world is. Uh, yeah. And it it's amazing. It, it actually feels really good to help someone without 
without getting paid for it or anything like that. Yeah. So I, I was too stubborn uh, and frankly angry to be a very good uh, a very good recipient of mentorship until I was sure. a little bit older, and then it it dramatically changed my career. And like I'm I'm really grateful for that. So I, I think it's cool you're doing it. Thank you. Oh, thank yeah. No, I appreciate that, and that's. You're right. It's that's that's exactly right. You, you never knew that these old guys or older guys would actually care, frankly. But it but it's so true. Everyone I know on, on my team would at least hop on the phone once in a while with you and and talk for 15, 20 minutes. No problem. And whether they turn it into, you know, a more formal thing or not, I don't know. That's their decision. But I, I can honestly say every single guy on the Olympic team would spend time with, you know, and mentors young kids if they had the opportunity. To some degree, maybe not full time, but sure. And and for the the kids listening, here's the deal: nothing pisses off a mentor like them taking their time to uh, to share basically wisdom that they accumulated from making mistakes, which is where wisdom usually comes from. And then to either a have you not show up, <laughs> which yeah, is really right. shitty, or uh, uh, to to show up unprepared and ask really basic questions that that either they should have already known or that mm-hmm. were easily Googleable, like or mm-hmm. were in your book or something, and right. and the third thing is if they give you really good advice and you don't do anything with it, and then you come back you know six months later or two months later or whatever, and like how that work out for you like oh yeah I forgot it's like no take notes like 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 yeah. some of the stuff is precious knowledge like you know someone who you know won four Olympic medals like like that's someone who like sweated blood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like respect oh, yeah. it enough to at least try it, right? I yeah, think. absolutely. And it's you know it's it's cool that you don't have to make every mistake in the book. You can go learn from something. You know, it's like reading somebody's book. You can ideally get ten years of experience down into a couple hundred pages, and hopefully pull at least one one ten year mistake out of there that you then won't go and make uh, on your journey, whatever your journey is, whether it's athletics or biohacking or relationship or whatever. Uh, well said. Now you had some questions for me. We're, this is going to be yeah. an unusual interview where uh, you know you're at a very high level and some tweaks for bulletproof. Mm-hmm. So let's kind of turn the tables. We've never done this cool. on bulletproof radio, but it seems like a cool idea. I'm, I'm excited. This maybe would be what I would do on a on a coaching session if we had one where I was I was coaching you on the bulletproof stuff. Right, right. So my first thing, kind of going back to the the whole vitamin D thing, you said you know you're a rower take your shirt off basically. Right. <laughs> so unfortunately it wasn't just that simple. Cause then, you know, there's also the concept of sunscreen. We don't want to get sunburned cause that'll zap our energy and then thus hinder our performance. So rowers wear some rowers wear a lot of sunscreen. Some literally are lobsters. So ignore them. But for those of us who do wear sunscreen, do you have any advice or hacks around sunscreen? Because I know that some have like a lot of terrible chemicals and you're sweating and you're absorbing that stuff as well. So, and that's probably not good either. But if you wear sunscreen all the time, you're depriving your body of a really important biological signal. Uh, Ultraviolet B radiation activates your vitamin D and activates your cholesterol. You'll Mm -hmm. have more rowing power if you get some, some vitamin D in your skin because you didn't use sunscreen. Now, Mm -hmm. that's not to say you should never use it, Mm-hmm. And my most powerful form of sunscreen is actually like a hat. But when you're on the water, it's going to reflect up on you. So you're going to want to put sunscreen on your face. Mm-hmm. The safest sunscreen is also the, the very sexiest. It's a non-micronized zinc oxide, mm-hmm. you know, like, like the lifeguards from the 70s with the big yeah, white thing on the their nose. Yeah, yeah exactly. it, looks like, it looks like crap. Uh-huh. Uh, but if you're already married, who cares? I'm kidding. <laughs> um, 
And there's also room to, to, to put a brand right there, like, you know, like a little like sponsorship <laughs> on your nose. So that's kind of ridiculous. But if you expose a small amount of your skin to sunscreen on a regular basis, that would be your face, the back of your neck and your ears. Mm-hmm. The sun is going to aid you there. I would tell you, don't wear sunglasses all the time. Mm. Um, probably excessive, not probably, I'd say excessive ultraviolet causes cataracts. A lack mm. of ultraviolet causes metabolic dysregulation. Mm. So we have this weird thing we do because we're simple animals. We'll always say, well, if something's too much of something is bad, therefore none of it's good. And we do this with sodium to the fact that the current recommended sodium consumption, if people actually did it, would increase heart attack risk because sodium consumption is so low. So salt isn't good or bad. You want it in a range, and the range depends on the amount of stress that you're under and a bunch of other stuff. But mm-hmm. telling everyone to be at the low end of the range is is scientifically invalid. Sure. And I think we've done that with sun. Sunburns mm-hmm. are bad for you. But mm-hmm. if you go out there with your shirt off for a half hour every day and you, mm-hmm. you develop a tan, you don't want to look like a lobster ever. But right. if you have a tan you're actually going to perform better. And mm-hmm. there's some intriguing new research out there. It's in my new book, actually, mm-hmm. around melanin, the compound that makes sure. you tan. Uh-huh. Melanin has the unique power to break water. In the presence of ultraviolet light, it has the power to break water down into extra electrons and extra oxygen. Hmm. When you're rowing, you want extra electrons in your body every way you possibly can. Sure. So I think having a tan, and especially on race day, if you have a base tan, I would go without. I take every tiny little advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one group uh, down in Mexico who believes that, at least in the eye, 26% of the oxygen inside the eye comes from melanin, not from your lungs, because there's no physiological, like there isn't enough blood flow to get oxygen levels right. where they are. So that's yeah. an interesting sun hack that's the opposite of sunscreen. And what I would consider doing, and you know your sport better than I do, uh, but they have the the skin tight uh, kind of like a uh, uh, rash guard, but even a little mm-hmm. bit thinner. Basically, yeah. sun protecting tight shirts. Mm-hmm. I'm going to Hawaii in a little while, and I'm going to not use sunscreen the whole time I'm there, except maybe on my face. And mm-hmm. if I've had enough sun, uh, if I turn very lightly pink, but I don't get sunburned, I'll just put on a, a long sleeve uh, rash yeah. guard and be good to go. Yeah, uh, and your legs are probably not that exposed. Uh, and I, I guess it depends on, I'm used to kayaking where you're a little mm-hmm. bit more covered, but you tend to not burn on your legs nearly as easily as your upper body for yeah. uh, its blood flow reasons. So uh, you'd have to decide what to do there, but I find more sun exposure on the legs is relatively safe. Yeah, like, I, I have as well. Like mel- like melanoma on your shin is yeah. not going to come from a sunburn. It, it's just not. By the way, my, okay. my grandfather died with melanoma on his big toe. Wow. He, he got a lot of sunburns on his big toe. No, he walked in cotton fields full of pesticides uh, mm. as part of his career, right? So uh, no, there's wow. also the, the correlation of a lack of sun exposure sure. can, can also contribute to skin cancer. So you also don't want to look like old and, you know, toasty. and stuff, yeah. Right. So I, I think put it on your face. Use that very high-end cosmetic-grade stuff. Uh-huh. The other thing is astaxanthin, which comes from eating a wild-caught sockeye salmon, uh-huh. uh, shrimp, and frankly, from supplements, yep. I would be taking, if I was going to get a lot of sun, like I will in Hawaii, I'll be taking um, astaxanthin probably 12 milligrams a day, okay. which is a, a pretty heavy dose. And take it with your Bulletproof coffee. Mm-hmm. Uh, you d- don't blend it in there. That would probably taste gross, and it might even harm yeah. the astaxanthin. You just want to have fat in the system while you're yeah. while you, when you take the capsule. Cool. Uh, I actually did eight hours in the sun without sunscreen. Uh, 
at 7,000 feet elevation with no wow. sunburn when I was doing lots of astaxanthin and I had my vitamin D levels at 100. So mm-hmm. you can get some protection where your skin's like, I'm ready. So You're naturally, yeah, yeah naturally yeah. ready. I think, I think though, as, as an athlete, astaxanthin could be really helpful for that. Hmm. Never heard right. of that, but that's a good one. It's A-S-T-A-X-A-N-T-H-I-N. Astaxanthin, cool, yep. okay. All right, that's like internal uh, sunscreen. Perfect. Uh, another question I had, in, and it kind of re- rolls into this. I listened to the interview you did with Dr. Tammy, and she was talking, of course, about hormones. Uh, but more broadly, I was thinking, like, do you have a recommendation as to getting your hormones and like your blood work done? Like, how to do that, when to do it, how often to do it, and then what to do with that information once you have it. I believe that you should get yourself tested at least once a year, and okay. probably as an athlete, I'd want to do four times a year, like once a quarter. Sure. And I'd want to see my inflammation markers and my sex hormone levels would be really important. And if you're dealing with any other things, like urine organic acids can be really helpful to tell whether your mitochondria are working well. Okay. But bottom line is if you have your lipid panel, like advanced lipid panel that tracks all these inflammatory markers, you can figure out if you're overtrained. And I see this a lot in the population that I work with, which is oftentimes type A. They're like CEOs of big companies or, yeah. uh, but they're like, you know, it's not enough that I'm CEO. I also have to be like an Ironman. And it's like, dude, here's the deal. <laughs> People who are heavy duty athletes, they sleep and they recover and they eat all the time. And you're a CEO, so you get on an airplane and you fly all night and then you're gonna like train heavy and then you're gonna go to meetings all day and then you're gonna get on an airplane, oh, go out mm-hmm. to dinner and drink a bunch of wine. What they end up getting is just overtrained and they break themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's a function of managing overall stress in your environment really matters. And as someone who has a job and is working out like this, you're at that risk. So getting your inflammation markers and your sex hormones is going to tell you when you need to recover more. And so you might need to dial back on the workout because your testosterone dropped, your sex hormone binding globulin went up, and your, all of your inflammation markers went up. Like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm in the, like, I need more sleep, and I'm actually just going to do, like, some stretching and just a light workout instead of, like, killing it. Right. We love to be very structured. Like it's so easy yeah. to wake up every morning and exercise. Right. I hate to tell you that's kryptonite for most people. Probably not for mm-hmm. you because you worked your way up to it, and because you eat for that, and you probably sleep for that too. By the way, do you do you sleep like do you, do you focus on sleep quality and recovery as part of what you do? Yeah, yeah. So that's another thing I implemented was the sleep app. I think I heard it. You and I've heard some other friends talk about the sleep app where you like track it and it nice. figures out, you know, what level of sleep you're at. And then also the notes have been really fun to play with as to like, I've been wearing an eye mask to bed and it sounds totally nerdy, but it's like that when I did that, it's like my sleep quality went up about 15% <laughs> by itself. Isn't it kind of crazy? <laughs> it's weird. And now, and now it's like, I do it every night regardless. And I have this silly like airplane mask, you know, United airplane mask they gave us, but it, <laughs> It honestly made such a huge difference for me. Um, but yes, tracking sleep and, you know, I know just anecdotally more than anything, eight hours is my number for right now. And when I get less, you know, I can do it once in a while. But if I'm consistently like seven or less hours, you know, four or five days a week, I can feel it. Um, and so having some of this information definitely helps. And, I, and of course, now I'm not training nearly the same level just because I'm off right now. Uh, so then, you know, I could get away with a little less sleep or a little bit of this or that sprinkled in there, but it definitely, I definitely track it and have, and have been paying attention to it. That is, uh, that is one of the things that's really going to show in your blood results. Hmm. So if you, if you get those every quarter, every six months, 
You can get them online now, and that's most affordable. Uh, mm-hmm. Where you can go, there's a variety of lab services like that. I've worked with Wellness FX. I was an advisor to them before they got acquired, mm-hmm. and there's they're relatively pricey, but their dashboard's really good. It tracks over time, so you pay a little bit more, you get a better data analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, you could get the same result somewhere else and track it yourself. Mm-hmm. But those sex hormones are so important. Oh, your thyroid, you should always get a, an advanced thyroid panel at least once a year. Mm-hmm. And that, that can just make a huge difference. What I'm looking to see in the Olympics and even in pro sports is a little bit of enlightened thinking. Yes, mm-hmm. people abused synthetic testosterone in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And then even then, we really like roid rage and all these people dying. And it was right. very overwrought in the media. Mm-hmm. And if your testosterone or growth hormone levels are low, you should be allowed or even required, I wouldn't require it, but I would at least want to make it highly encouraged mm-hmm. to supplement those things appropriately, mm-hmm. physiologically, under a physician's care. It is unethical to take a healthy young guy like you, but how old are you? 27. 27, right? So between 30 and 40, your testosterone is going to decline. Your stomach gas is going to decline. And we have this bizarre double standard where you're allowed to take betaine HCL capsules to help you digest your food better if you want to, even though it's a normal part of aging to have less of it. But you're not allowed to top up your testosterone to keep it within range if you get it at the bottom of your range. So you will have more injuries and more likelihood of dying because you didn't keep your testosterone where it should be. And it's not cool. Uh, and it's, it's, it's part of aging. So the idea is that, well, if you're going to compete, you, you're not allowed to do this. And I, I interviewed a... Again, uh, Andrew, who wrote the Doper next door, and he like mm-hmm. uses testosterone supplementation without permission as a, like a semi-pro cyclist, and then mm-hmm. like came clean, gave back all of his awards, and wrote a book about it. He's a journalist; he did it as like a journalism thing. Right, and he's like, I was able to keep up with guys. He's in his mid thirties, keep up with guys you know, ten years younger than me. He's like, it was mm-hmm. amazing. I, I got wow. I, I got myself back. Like, why do we torture ourselves? Yeah, with, without having these things, so. You're not allowed to do that as an Olympian, but you are allowed to eat a lot of egg yolks that are raw, like the, the get some ice cream recipe in the book. Yeah. I'd be pounding that stuff and then look mm-hmm. at the results in your labs and see if your testosterone is where you want it to be. Sure. Right on. That's that's super helpful. Um, my So my, my father has this thing, and I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's called Meniere's disease. Does that ring a bell to you? I've definitely heard about it. Tell tell listeners about more about it, like what it so, is. So... My understanding of it is it's not like a, there's no like one specific thing that causes it. It's like a ton of symptoms all lumped together. He describes it as vertigo, nausea, um, just foggy, general fogginess, kind of like he's, you got like a sinus infection, but you're not, there's no sinus thing going on. But um, when he got diagnosed with it, what they recommended was limiting or almost eliminating sodium intake. And for him, he's like, oh, this is easy. I don't really eat sweets. I don't eat a lot of um, uh, baked goods. I don't, you know, whatever whatever else they told him in the office. Uh, salad dressing was one of the big things he had to kind of pay attention to. But they said 1,500 milligrams or less a day is wow. what you're allowed. And so he's been sticking pretty strictly to that. And he's like, as soon as I get, you know, I can add up my milligrams because he's pretty uh, aware. And he's like, once I get to about 1500 is when I start to feel dizzy and nauseous and vertigo and all these other things. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about what he can do or, uh, not do, I guess in, in this case. 
You live in the right part of the world. Well, yeah, you live in the right part of the world for him to come and visit. He's not in the Bay Area, is he? No, he actually lives in Seattle. Uh, well, there's there's a guy in Alameda who's been on, on Bulletproof Radio. Uh, mm-hmm. Dwight Jennings is his name. Okay. Uh, Northern California craniofacial something. And what's going on there? And I'm not, I, I don't know the specific causes. I'm not a doctor. I'm not an expert in this, but I, sure. I've... I've looked into this uh, a long time ago for another another client. If you adjust your jaw alignment, mm-hmm. like your the pressure on the nerve that runs uh, basically through the ear goes mm-hmm. down. The, it's it's the uh, basically the stuff that causes TMJ pushes on the nerve there, and eventually it affects the vagus nerve. There's another bulletproof radio interview with uh, the guy who uh, Stephen Porges, the guy who created something called polyvagal theory, that different parts of that nerve do different things. But what Dr. Jennings has found, and this is work I've had done on myself that profoundly improved my nervous system function, Mm. is that he can quite often reverse ringing in the ears and vertigo by Mm. allowing the jaw to relax. So you actually Mm. lower the jaw through just like a a splint you sleep with and allowing the jaw to move forward. And suddenly Mm. ringing in the ears go down, pressures in the ear can go down. Wow. And that could be a profound thing. And it's, it's non-surgical. It's literally right. you, you go in and you, you 24 hours a day, you have a little thing that raises the height of your jaw. And uh-huh. that alone can be important. The other thing is there's progressive hearing loss with that condition. So mm-hmm. increasing mitochondrial function would be terribly important. Mm-hmm. And you can do that with even like beta alanine, some of the supplements mm-hmm. you do. And the other mitochondrial enhancing substances, I talk about those all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, those are all going to be really beneficial. And the other thing I would consider that's completely not studied for this, at least if it is studied, I've never come across the studies, um, and it's unlikely to have been studied, and it's called cerebral electrical stimulation. <clears throat> In fact, I did it last night. Oh, wow. It's also known as a Russian sleep machine. And what you do is you hook a little electrode to each earlobe, mm-hmm. and you run a very small current between the ears. And it synchronizes the brain. It causes increases in brain-derived nootropic factor and a bunch of other things. It's usually used for depression or things like that. Russians invented it because they figured you need less sleep when you use this thing. Right. So if they can make astronauts sleep less, they could pay to send less astronauts to space. So they're like, how do we burn them out without burning them out? Right. And they run about 1000 bucks, and it's a prescription item most of the time. There's a couple consumer-grade ones out there. But cerebral electrical stimulation, CES, I would want to try that for a couple months and see what happened. Hmm. The reason I'm interested in that is that running that small current actually in, enhances mitochondria. It provides electrons there. So if right. you've got parts of the ear that are at risk, if you were to relax the jaw, allow better flow, blood flow there, do that, and maybe throw in some hyperbaric oxygen and cold laser on the ears, I'll be damned if you couldn't feel better. Like, like I know that's <laughs> hackable, right? But yeah. no, none of those are you going to see at a normal clinic. Like, it, it's just it's considered too bizarre. All of those sure. are mitochondrial enhancers uh-huh. at one level or another, and I, I think that could be a powerful stack. But man, I'm not a doctor. Approve right. it with this doctor. These are like supportive things that I would do if I'd ring it in my ears without a diagnosis of anything. Wow. Uh, so you know, take that Very with a cool. grain of salt. If there's 10,000 people listening to this, I don't think any of that stuff is, is even remotely dangerous. Uh, CES probably has some very, like, like that's the most edgy of those, but good God, it's been around for 40 years, and I don't yeah. know anyone who's died of it, so sure. I think it's pretty safe. Definitely. You have time for one more question? One more. Let's do it. All right. 
So protein, like the obviously a lot of my teammates are all in the whey protein category, and that's what's pretty popular in the sports world, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, but I, I'm really liking the collagen protein as well. Um, do you do a cocktail of the two? Do you recommend one versus the other? What's, what's your thinking on that? Whey protein is really powerful as a detoxer and uh, an immune stimulator. It also raises insulin pretty quickly. Okay. And it contains a lot of inflammatory amino acids like, like cysteine and methionine. Mm-hmm. So you need to get those amino acids, but you don't need excess amounts of them. So you see a lot of these uh, you know, bodybuilders and pro athletes like, protein, it's all yeah. about the protein. So yep. You, yep. here's the deal. If you get like bad protein farts like almost all bodybuilders have, right. it's because your body's trying to turn the protein into fuel. Protein uh-huh. is not meant to be a fuel. Protein uh-huh. is a building block. When you okay. use protein as a fuel, you tend to get inflammation. You tend to get extra ammonia. And mm-hmm. your kidneys and your liver don't thank you for it. So, mm-hmm. so your job is to eat as much protein as your body needs for muscle mass, but not more, and to get the rest of the energy from fat and even from carbs, like slow-burning starches. Right. And collagen protein is unique. The collagen that I manufacture is pre-digested, so it goes in very, very easily. So it, it's highly available. It's also high in glycine, which mm-hmm. is an amino acid that doesn't cause inflammation like these other ones. And mm-hmm. it's really good for repair of like the bone scaffolding is made out of collagen. Your skin right. is collagen, your joints are collagen. So right. if you're doing repetitive motion, you know you want your hips and your knees and your elbows and wrists and all that stuff to hold up forever. So replacing those tissues with appropriate building blocks that aren't present in a normal diet works really well. So yeah. I've found that I can increase the net protein consumption using collagen without increasing the consumption of inflammatory amino acids. So you can have more sure. protein than otherwise. At your level, not more than four tablespoons of whey, what I recommend. And then there's many different kinds and types of whey. The way that I work with in the Bulletproof product is from grass-fed dairy, but it's from right. it's not a cheese byproduct. We actually take the fresh raw milk from the cows and take it straight to manufacturing okay. whey. So oh, it's wow. it's not like a fermentation byproduct. Most of what you buy out there in those you know big you know burlap sacks yep. of whey that yep. you see uh, uh, bodybuilders oftentimes do, but they're bodybuilders who are super health conscious and all. But like this right. is traditional, right. you know, got to get the protein. GNC stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, even GNC has started carrying some quality stuff. Oh, they, but yeah, I don't mean yeah. to knock them, but you know, you know what I mean. The yeah, but like, like yeah, the, the stuff big, you, you yeah. find at any bulk store where it's mm-hmm. it's like you know mass gainer five thousand six dollars for you know two pounds of protein. <laughs> like, like yep. what's in there? And the answer is what they can find is what's in <laughs> yep. there you know, straight yeah. gluten protein. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I, I don't think that it's wise to, to turn to protein as a fuel source. And a lot of athletes do that. Like, like I, I'm just going to have protein in, in a salad for lunch. It's like, actually, there's just building blocks in there. Salad, you can't burn salad. There's a mm-hmm. few vitamins in there and you got some protein, but you're actually starving for energy when you do that. And your body yeah. will convert the chicken breast into into energy, but it comes at a much higher cost than pouring some brain octane on there, which goes to energy very quickly, or for that matter, having some rice with it, and then using that for energy and having the protein available as a as a muscle building material. Yeah. So four tablespoons a day for athletes and two tablespoons a day for non-athletes. Right. The way that I use also has 20% colostrum in it, uh, which mm-hmm. is mother's milk, and it's because mm-hmm. the value of whey is, is the immune signaling. 
these IgG molecules. And so I can get way more of those in there. So I'm like, whey is precious. It needs to be done right. And, and it needs to be in moderate to low amounts. If you're doing you know, eight scoops away a day, you're actually not benefiting yourself. I don't think that's sure. a healthy practice. Sure, sure. So and for eggs, me, lots of eggs if you're not allergic to them. Yeah. Yeah, so for me, I do a lot. I do like a scoop of collagen in my bulletproof coffee. Would you even say throw in a scoop of uh, whey as well? Just and and then that's enough protein for the for the morning kind of thing, or is that? Well, I I would do two scoops. I mean, the collagen scoops are around uh, what's eight grams. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. Like seven point eight grams if memory serves. So like this morning, I had three scoops of collagen uh, oh. in mine, uh, and so that's twenty one grams of protein. Mm-hmm. Way you can put in coffee, but the coffee needs to be cooled down a little bit first. Yeah, and I, I tried that one time, and I was like sorely. I was like drinking little chunks away. It was weird. I didn't like yeah, I, I'm not a huge fan. It doesn't need to be cold coffee, but it's like you know not super hot because right. At least if you're going to use my way, that stuff is is expensive because it's 20 percent mother's milk colostrum. Like it, it's yeah. it's biologically delicate, and if yeah. you blend the crap out of a way like that, which is full of, of peptides. You end up breaking them down mechanically. So what you want to do is like blend up the coffee and then add the collagen and and it, it's cooled down a little bit from being in the blender. Add the whey, just pulse it enough that it's not it's not chunks, but it's not like beaten all the crap. Uh, either that or just have the have the whey uh, separately. Um, you can okay. mix it mix it with a little bit of almond butter, uh, and mm, it goes in really there you easy. Go. It's, it's it's literally like. A ball, like you, you just put it in a, in a bowl. You can mix several days worth. Just <laughs> yeah, stir yeah. it up and just take like two big tablespoons. And there's your whey, and you get some kind of nice. Oh, and add some salt in there too. That'll be good. Sure, that's awesome. This is great. Well, yeah. Hey, you know that's that makes a lot more sense. And I'm, you know, I'm gonna totally try some try some of these things and figure out exactly uh, kind of what the results are. That'll that'll be exciting. Uh, awesome. Uh, I'm. Uh, I'm really eager to hear what you what you learned from that, and just uh, if you if you in three months from now with your dad, just drop mm-hmm. me a note if you would, and let me know if if any or all of those things just made him feel better. That'd be really cool because if so, we can talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about that just because there's probably a couple thousand people listening right now with the same condition. The the benefits sure. of having half a million people here an episode are that we might yeah. help some of them. So let, let me definitely know. definitely I'll uh, I'll, I'll Talk to him about some of that stuff and then see what he thinks. Awesome. And we've got one more question for you. And Please. this one you're probably expecting. And that is, uh, if someone came to you tomorrow and said, I want to kick ass at everything I do, what are the mm-hmm. three most important things I need to know? What would you tell them? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, I would say, first of all, it would be about your mindset and your To me, all this other stuff is kind of like biohacking is awesome, but like to what end, right? Like, what are we trying to gain out of this? Like, are we trying to be the best family person we can be? Or are we trying to be the best athlete we can be? I don't know. Like that's, that's for them to decide. So I would make sure they're pretty clear on like why we're doing this in the first place. Um, secondly, I would say start tracking your food. Like if you feel mm-hmm. sluggish at two o'clock, um, I actually had a friend who was a little overweight, um, you know, he was sitting in an office for a really long time and all he started doing was just tracking his food on uh, one of those food tracker apps. I can't mm-hmm. remember which one it was, but he was just writing it down. And between that and going for some jogs in the morning, he lost 30 pounds, you know, so he was very, he became aware and it gave him a budget, how many calories he was allowed. And then slowly he's started to educate himself more. And then third, I would say is, um, I would say, 
basically don't take yourself so seriously all the time. Like have some <laughs> fun, cool. laugh once in a while. That's really hard for me to do. I'm, I'm as serious as I can possibly be like all the time. And my girlfriend is constantly trying to get me to laugh and, and relax a little bit, but I'm, I'm too high strung sometimes and too serious. So uh, I know that I need to be, do that. And, and what I found helps is first of all, just, you know, finding funny things through the day and being willing to laugh at them, but also come from a place of some gratitude and, tell people when you're like thankful for them. Like I've literally started calling a, pe- a couple of people every day who I think about, like I'm really thankful for their friendship. So I call them and tell them and it is unbelievable how much that little thing will make a difference in my day. Excellent piece of advice. Hans, where can people find out more? You said coachhans.com? Yeah. So my website is coachhans.com. You can drop me a note there. That'll send me a direct email uh, on Facebook I don't really have like a, a page. I guess I have a Twitter, but I don't really use it. So I guess the, the website's probably the best place. It's coachhans.com. Awesome. Thanks for being a guest on Bulletproof Radio. And thanks for kicking some ass uh, at, uh, at an amateur sport. Like it's really cool <laughs> to see people just pursue excellence for its own reward instead of yeah. just for a paycheck. Nothing yeah. wrong with a paycheck, but still it's cool Certainly that you not, found yeah. something you love and you're doing it. Well, Dave, hey, thanks for your time and thanks for the opportunity to be on and, and uh, have a good rest of your week. Awesome. Have a great week. You too. Bye. Bye. If you liked today's episode, you know what to do. Head on over to bulletproof.com and pick up some Instamix or some Brain Octane or some coffee and give it a try. If you haven't tried actual Bulletproof coffee made with the right ingredients, it's a whole nother level. Coconut oil simply cannot do what Brain Octane does. If it did, I would tell you. So here's the deal. You feel a lot more ketones and there's a new study from the University of California that actually talks about ketone formation and brain octane. It turns out it raises ketones way more than coconut oil. So putting coconut oil in your coffee makes it taste like a pina colada and it doesn't raise ketones. So give it a shot. That's at bulletproof.com brain octane oil. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.